Well, this morning, uh, this morning we're going to be in the book of Esther, so if you want to grab your Bible, you can turn to the book of Esther. Uh, Pastor Jeff isn't here this morning, so I'm taking over, and uh, I've been working on the book of Esther. We've, we've had a couple, over the last months, we've had a couple of times where we've been looking at this book, and hopefully... Uh, you took some time over this last week to maybe read through that, that second and third chapter of Esther. I changed the plan a little bit on the uh, sermon schedule. I think it said that we were going to go all the way through chapter three, but we're just sticking to chapter two today. So we're going to be looking at Esther chapter two, verses five through 23 today. And uh, let's go ahead and let's, let's pray before we begin. God, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I ask that you will uh, use it in our hearts and our minds to help us to understand you more, help us to see how you work in this world. And Lord, I just pray that, uh, that you would open all of our hearts to, to listen well. Lord, I pray that, um, that you will speak through me. I hope that, uh, that anything I say would be edifying that would be according to uh, your word here. And Lord, we just, uh, we commit this time to you. Ask that, uh, that you would be glorified in and through it. In your name, amen. So, as I said, we've been looking at Esther, and um, I'm not going to take too much time to review the, the book, but we come to uh, Esther chapter 2, and there's been a lot of things that have happened, and one of the main characters is King Ahasuerus, and what we're going to be looking at mostly today is how this king goes about finding a new queen. Uh, he, because of his pride and because of his anger over uh, the things that his former queen Vashti did, uh, divorced her, and she's out of the picture now, but he's looking for a new bride. One of the great mysteries of this life is uh, how God can take less than perfect circumstances and turn them around to accomplish his purposes. And you see that throughout the Bible, you see God's hand in good times. You see God's hand in bad times. One of the classic figures from the Old Testament where uh, this is very clear is the character of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery by him. The very ones who were meant to protect him are the ones who were hurting him. He was falsely accused. He was jailed because of Potiphar's wife. Uh, he was forgotten by his buddy, the cupbearer, who promised to remember him, yet didn't, but then finally did. There were a lot of things in Joseph's life that you would have looked at and just thought, wow, <laughs> you know, how, how does he keep going? But then, throughout his life also, you see that God just continues to work. He continues to take those bad circumstances and change them and, and turn them, and where you thought, ah, it's over for Joseph, it's not. He actually is promoted, and it turns out better than he expected. And you see all of this um, taking place, and, and hopefully, 
as a believer, you're, you're encouraged by that because you see that even though he's going through hard circumstances, through tough times, God is still there, and he is even working through and in those hard circumstances to bring about his good purposes, even to the point where in Genesis uh, chapter 50, Joseph says these classic words to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So the things that were happening in his life, the things that were horrible and bad and that were even meant to harm him, God took those things and turned them for his good, but not only his good, for the good of a lot of people. Because if you remember, the whole, the whole nation of Egypt was saved because of Joseph's involvement, because of his planning and the, the things that God did through him. So God is in the business of taking less than perfect circumstances and still working. So be encouraged because you may be sitting here thinking, well, I've got some less than perfect circumstances going on. Well, be encouraged. God can and will and often does work through those types of things. If there's some sort of current difficulty that you are going through, maybe a good thing to ask is not, God, why, in a complaining kind of way, but God, why? As in, what do I need to learn? You know, how can I draw closer to you in these circumstances? We're good at the God, why, but we're not always so good at the God, why? Help me understand. And we are so tempted to, to be controlled by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But we must remember that God is in control. He's in control of everything, the good and the bad. There's another verse that is kind of a, a classic, and uh, I love it but it's also hard. Romans 8, 28 and 29. You may, again, be familiar with these verses, but they say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's an amazing thing, because what those verses are saying is that, yeah, things could be hard, but God can work, and the work that he does through any and every circumstance, ultimately for those of us who believe, is to, to draw us closer to him and to make us more like Christ, and that is the ultimate good of this life, to be more like Christ. The thing that we don't like is often that comes through hardship, often that comes through bad circumstances, or what we would call bad circumstances. Well, what does all of this have to do with the, the portion of Esther that we're gonna be looking at today? Well, I mention it because the circumstances that Esther finds herself in, not real good. The things that, that Mordecai uh, is doing in this, 
not necessarily good. The things that Mordecai overhears, bad plans. Uh, but in all of this, there, there's a lot of bad and there's a lot of questionable things going on. But what I want us to keep in mind throughout this is that God is using this. God is in control. He hasn't just left Esther and Mordecai on their own to figure things out. He's working. And hopefully, we'll see this as we go through. So let's go ahead and let's uh, read. I'm going to read all of chapter 2, but uh, we're just going to focus on verse 5 through 23. But Let's start there in Esther chapter two, verse one. Read along with me. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young, women who, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when Many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace, 
in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So, there we go. Some interesting things. And, like I said, God uses all sorts of things for his purposes and for his glory and for his will. For his will. It's interesting that uh, we see how the king got this advice from his young friends to, as a way to find a new queen, and up until, up until verse four of chapter two, we've heard nothing about the namesake of this book. We've heard nothing about Esther, we've heard nothing about Mordecai. All we've been hearing about is this king and his parties and his divorces and his desire for a new wife, and now, in verse five, it says, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. So we're introduced to a new character here, and it's significant that, uh, that Mordecai is introduced as a Jew, because this is the place where this story of King Ahasuerus really touches the biblical landscape. Uh, Throughout the history of the world, there have been many kings, there have been many kingdoms that have come and gone. In the several thousand years of, of human history leading up to this point, uh, there were countless kings, there were countless kingdoms. But the Bible doesn't record anything about Chinese dynasties, it doesn't record anything about uh, North and South America during these times. It doesn't record any of that stuff. It only tells us about things that are pertinent to God and his plan. And it's interesting that we get this glimpse into the life of King Ahasuerus because without him in some way uh, touching upon God's plan and what he was doing with the Jews, we would know little to nothing about him as far as uh, from the Bible. But when it says that there was a Jew in Susa, it focuses us in, and now we know why we're hearing about this king. Now we know why uh, it's important to know some of his character and some of the things that are going on because he is going to play a, an integral part in what's going on with the plan of the people of Israel. So now, 
there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel. Why was he there? Do you remember? Think back in your Jewish history. Exile, thank you. Yeah, he was there because, oh, 70 or so years before, uh, the Jewish people were taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there was a long history of judges and kings, and um, you, know, you can read about that in the earlier portions of, of the Old Testament, but it's interesting that the Jews, or some of the Jews, were still in Susa at this time because they had been taken into exile um, 70 years earlier by a king that was the, the emperor of a completely different empire. We've transitioned from the uh, Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire. And all of this happened during that time when the Jews were, were away in captivity, in exile because of their disobedience to the Lord. God was using these, these 70 years of captivity to, to refine the Jewish people, to uh, help them see how good they had it with God, and he was planning to bring them back into the land and reestablish them through the building of, rebuilding of Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple. Well, Mordecai had lasted through these 70 years of, of captivity, and he had actually stayed in Susa when the rest of them had gone back. There was, uh, after the 70 years of exile, uh, many people came back through the leadership of, of Ezra and Nehemiah and started the rebuilding of, the, of Jerusalem, of the temple, but there were some that stayed in Babylon, that stayed in Susa. Now, there are many reasons why they stayed, probably, but this gets us to one of the frustrating parts of the book of Esther. One of the things that is, is frustrating is that we don't know exactly why he stayed. Um, we don't know exactly why a lot of things that we're gonna talk about happened. We want to know why, but we just don't because I don't think that that's the main point of this book. The main point of this book isn't for us to understand the motives and things behind why each character does what they do, but the, the point of this book is for us to keep our eyes on the God who is working in spite of some of the things that they do and through a lot of the things that they do. So Mordecai is there. He is, uh, he is in the city of Susa, and he's not alone. Who does he have with him? He has Esther. Uh, Jewish name is Hadassah, and her given name in the Persian Empire is Esther. And she was an orphan that he uh, took under his care. Uh, they were cousins, and um, he was a good father to her by all accounts, it seems. And she, for her part, uh, we don't know much about her other than that she was a Jew, that she was an orphan, that she was taken in by Mordecai. And we also know 
that she was pretty. It says right there that uh, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Why does that matter? Well, what's the king looking for, right? We gotta remember there's, there's stuff going on at this time that are in a lot of ways beyond the control of the characters in this book. And King Ahasuerus at this point is on a mission. He's looking for the best. He wants uh, the best young virgins from, from all of his kingdom to come so that he can pick his next wife. So the fact that uh, Esther was beautiful uh, plays right into this storyline of, of what is going on with the king. I was, uh, I was challenged this week to maybe change the uh, title of my sermon to God Uses Beautiful People. I won't mention who told me to do that, but uh, I don't think that's necessarily the point here. Um, but it does play a part in this whole story. So Ahasuerus is looking for a new wife, and here is Esther. She's young, she's lovely, she's beautiful, and she gets picked as one of the lucky ladies to uh, be involved in this, in this whole attempt to find a new queen. Now, there's a few problems with the way that uh, Ahasuerus is going about finding uh, a new bride. Uh, number one is just the fact that he's pulling all of these people from around his kingdom, many of them probably against their will. Some of them may have leapt at the opportunity to go and to have a chance to be the queen. Like, yeah, that would be awesome. Um, this is just kind of conjecture, but I'm guessing that there, there would be those that would really see this as an opportunity. They would have no qualms with being called on to go and to try out for the king's wife. Um, they would even see it as a great honor to be picked. We know that in certain areas, there probably would have been families who were pushing their daughters to do this. Go, yeah, this is a great opportunity. This is a good thing. However, if you look at this through the lens of biblical morality, this is really a bad thing. <laughs> this is not good, what he is doing. But, you know, before we get too judgmental, and I have to admit, I was, you know, reading through this, and I'm thinking, oh, what a horrible thing this is, how, you know, terrible King Ahasuerus is. Before we cast too much, you know, too many stones in his direction, um, this just came to me. There's a show on TV that I have to admit I've watched. It's been a while. Um, but there's actually two shows now. The, the first one spawned another one. There's The Bachelor and there's The Bachelorette. <laughs> um, now why do, why do I bring up these TV shows? Uh, well, because <laughs> what are these shows? In, in a small way, they're, they're kind of like what is going on here in the book of Esther. Um, you have one guy or one girl, and then you have 
this whole group of people who are all vying for their affections and their attention, and it's, you know, it's shown to us for entertainment purposes, but it's really, if you stop and think about it, it's kind of sad. <laughs> and it wasn't like this in the early days when I saw The Bachelor, um, but you know, nowadays, the, everything leads up to what? The overnight dates, right? And not everybody gets to make it to those overnight dates, but boy, those who are, aren't they lucky? You know, and like the culture, the world eats this up. <laughs> it's primetime television. You know, and I'm reading Esther and I'm thinking, oh, how horrible, but then I'm reminded, hmm, <laughs> Not much has changed under the sun, has it? You know, and, and just the fact that, that our culture and our society sees this and, and approves of it and is enamored by this and even, you know, it's the talk of, you know, around the water cooler the next day about how those dates went and stuff and it's like, it's really kind of sad because it's this same type of thing going on using sexuality to try and be like the basis for, uh, for who you pick. And, and it's, eh, it's not right. <laughs> it's not how God would want it. So, how is Esther even a part of this? Is it her will? Does she want to? Was she forced to? Good question. Let's look Oh, wait. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have a verse to point to. We know that she was involved, but we don't know how or why or whether she was really opposed to it or whether she was all for it. And that's kind of one of the frustrating things about reading this book. It's like, um, I don't know if I ever saw this show, but uh, Dragnet, you know, just the facts, right? That's what you get here in Esther. This is just the facts. We want to know more. We want to know, well, what are the motives? What are the consequences? You know, what are the things going on? But we don't get that. We just get the facts. So we have this lovely young Jewish girl, Esther, and she's caught up in this um, king's plan to, to find a new uh, wife. And we know that there's a possibility that maybe she was okay with this, but then if you start to think about her heritage, uh, one of the things that was really clear that the Lord told the Jews over and over is don't intermarry with other people because they will draw your heart away from me. Deuteronomy 7, three through four says, um, you know, do not you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they shall turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Esther probably knew these verses. Mordecai should have known these verses. They should have been clear that this is not something that a young Jewish lady should be involved in. But she is. Not only that, but she seems to excel. You see that she goes into the care of the, uh, the eunuch there, Haggai, and 
um, he's pleased with her. She does well, he's impressed. She gets all of her cosmetics, the, the portion of food. She's uh, given seven uh, choice young women to help her in all of this, and she's advanced ahead of a lot of the other ladies in this whole, uh, whole <laughs> charade or you know, this, this attempt to, to find the love of his life. And she's doing well. And then we come to the point where it's actually her turn. Um, now, there's some people who would be tempted at this point to kind of open up the kid's storybook and read that version that says that she, it was a talent contest or it was you know, something other than what it really was. If you read it, the facts are she goes to the king, she spends the night, she goes in a virgin, and afterwards she goes back to where the concubines are not back to where the virgins are. So, you know, this was a, a sexual tryout of sorts. And, um, you know, again, this is tough because was this like rape? Or was she a willing participant? Well, look at verse, oh, it's not there. <laughs> but he was really pleased with her. Uh, we know that because it does tell us that when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, uh, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set his royal crown on her. So her time comes, and she does well. The king is pleased. He so pleased that he makes her queen. So pleased that he not only gives her the crown, but then he throws a big party. He's good at throwing parties, if you remember the, the first chapter. He had one that lasted 180 days. Um, he throws a party, and not only does he throw a party, but he, uh, he gives tax relief to the people. So he's very pleased with King Esther. And, did I say king? Queen Esther. And, you know, things, according to uh, King Ahasuerus, they're, they're going just swimmingly. He's found the love of his life. Yay. But we're kind of sitting here going, uh, really? <laughs> is that how it is? I don't like that. There, there's part of me that doesn't, it doesn't seem like this is right or good. Well, and then we have this, this other instance that, that happens here in chapter two. And we have something going on with, with Mordecai. So Mordecai, all along, has been a pretty good father in the sense that he's been looking out for Esther. He would go to the, the gate of the harem and try and figure out, you know, how are things going, what's, what's happening, uh, get the lowdown. And we see here again that he's, he's at the gate and he is, uh, no doubt, trying to figure out what's happening with Esther, but he, 
he happens upon these other guys who are planning harm towards the king. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's just he's in the right place at the right time. He hears this plot, and he, um, instead of going, yes, finally an end to this evil king, he goes, no, I'm going to go say something. He goes and he tells Esther about this plan, and then Esther repeats it to the king. The king uh, carries out his own investigation, finds that it's true that these uh, two eunuchs are indeed after him, and he takes care of things, swift. (laughs) And it says there in verse uh, 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Now this isn't of huge importance in this um, whole story, but it's interesting. It says gallows here, and the picture that I get is like, you know, an old western where you have the gallows and a rope, but um, actually, probably more accurately in Persian culture, this would have been just a stake in the ground, and they would have been impaled on that stake and hung up for everybody to see. So, not the nice, neat gallows, not that gallows are nice and neat, but, (laughs) you know, a little bit different picture than, than what I typically think of when I read this and I see that word. So, again, we have Mordecai. He's a Jew, and he um, is now implicit in helping this king, <laughs> implicit in, in saving his life. Now, why did he do that? Did he do that because he w- had turned his back on God turned his back on the Jewish people and was all for the Persian Empire, or maybe he was just protecting Esther, or, well, let's look and see the verse and um, verse, hmm, yeah, it doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us why. We want to know why. Why did he do this? Well, to kind of start wrapping things up, I think one of the reasons why we don't know why a lot of these things are happening is because then we would walk away from this with a nice little moral lesson. We would say, well, look at what Queen Esther did, and and she did this because of these motives, and we know that that's right, so we should follow her example in this. And, And that wouldn't be necessarily bad or wrong, or we could say, well, you know, here's what happened to Queen Esther, and she did it for wrong motives, and that's wrong, so we shouldn't do that. And we would come away with this nice, neat, you know, little moral lesson to learn. And I think the reason that those uh, little moral lessons aren't the point of this is because this is just like a part of a bigger story. And the part that I believe the author of this wants us to understand and know is not necessarily the part about Esther and the part about Mordecai, but the part about God. Now here's the interesting thing. Where is God mentioned? He's not. But do you see him? Do you see his fingerprints in all of this? Do you see his working in these circumstances? Do you see the preservation? Do you see Esther winning favor with everybody and is it it just her looks? 
Or is it that God is working here? Is it that he is setting things up for something bigger and better? And it would be my assumption and my conclusion that yes, he is. He is in this. He is working. He is protecting. He's guiding. He's putting people in the right places. He's working through these circumstances to, to set things up for his glory and for the accomplishment of his purposes. After Mordecai you know, discovers this plot, lets the king know, the king um, takes care of business, wouldn't you expect that the king would be really happy with Mordecai and say, hey, thank you, Mordecai. Well done. Let's throw another party. I love parties. Right, that's kind of what you expect. But then look at chapter three, verse one. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. What? Who's this guy? (laughs) Didn't Mordecai just do this really good thing for the king, and then we don't know what happened to Mordecai, but then this other guy, Haman, gets promoted. Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha. Well, who cares about this guy? Well, interesting history. There's a reason for the things that are included in this book, and go back to verse five where Mordecai is introduced. Mordecai is introduced as the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Keep that in mind, Kish, Benjamite. And then this other guy, Haman, is introduced as an Agagite. Now, who do you know who's the son of Kish, a Benjamite? Some of you said it, Saul, right? Who do you know who's an Agagite? Or who started the Agagites? King Agag. If you go back into the history of Saul and his kingdom, this was a major failure for Saul. God had told Saul to go fight against King Agag and utterly destroy everything, and what did Saul do? He kept stuff, right? He didn't kill Agag, and he kept the best stuff. And this is where the prophet comes to him and says, what are, do I hear sheep? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> um, the, the history of some of the kings of, of Israel is interesting because we see that it affects other things. And that's one of the, the interesting things about this book is here we have a descendant of Kish, now a descendant of Agag. Hmm, I wonder, do you think things are gonna go well? Maybe they're setting the stage for something bad to happen? Yeah, I think so. But the stage is also set for deliverance. The stage is also set for God to do some pretty amazing things because remember, what Mordecai did was written down. And remember that Esther is now in the position of queen. 
And is this all about Esther and Mordecai? Kind of. But more than that, it's about God. And he's working. And read the rest of the book. (laughs) And you'll see how this setting up of things is really quite amazing. So, you know, what can we take away from this uh, by way of application? Or what, what does this have to do with our lives? Well, just remember that the same God who is at work in this book is the God that we serve. And he is at work in your life. You know, what circumstances do you have going on in your life? They might be great. If so, praise the Lord. But don't sit back on your heels and just think, oh, life is great, I don't need to learn anything. No, even those good things are meant to draw you into a closer relationship with him, are meant to teach you. We're never able in this lifetime to sit back and say, oh, I've reached the pinnacle. (laughs) You may be in circumstances that, that are tough, that are hard right now, And you should really be thinking, hmm, is God setting something up here? Is there something I need to learn? Is there something where I'm going to be able to to serve somebody else, where I'm gonna be able to be a part of his plan? Hmm, I wonder. And isn't it amazing that, you know, the bigger picture here in Esther, and we haven't talked much about this either, but the bigger picture is that through the events that happen here, the whole people of Israel are saved. Our God is someone who saves. He's a God of deliverance. And he has given us the ultimate savior, Jesus Christ. You know, ultimately, when we read stories of salvation in the Old Testament, it should point us to the gospel. It should remind us that we serve the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe, who created everything, who is love, who is mercy, who is grace. And it should remind us that we're in trouble and we need saving, right? Because that's the truth of the Bible is we're presented with this amazing God, but then we're presented with our problem and our main problem is sin. We all are sinners. We all have gone astray in our own ways. None of us naturally seeks after God. None of us naturally wants him. We're all rebels. But he is gracious and he is merciful and he has provided the ultimate salvation for us through his son, Jesus Christ, who came, who died on the cross, who took the punishment and the weight of our sins on himself on the cross so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could be free from the punishment of sin. And that is, you know, there's nothing greater than what Christ did for us in this whole universe, and there never will be. It's amazing that God would look at us little sinners and want to save us and provide a way to save us through Christ. And all he asks from us is belief. He says repent from your ways and believe in me, believe in Christ, believe in what he did through the cross. Repent from thinking that you're okay. 
That's the way of the world. It says, oh, you're not so bad. You're okay. You just do enough good stuff and you're fine, right? No, that's not right. That's the type of thinking that we need to repent from. We need to repent from our sins. We need to repent from our self-reliance and we have to turn to God and we have to turn to his provision through Christ. That's the only way to be free from our burden of sin and to live in faith continually looking to Christ and saying, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> it's what you did, and I believe it. And, you know, stories of salvation should point us to the salvation that God offers. And, you know, this is one of those things where, for many of us, we agree and we celebrate this gospel, but there may be some out there who are like, eh, I don't I'm not sure if I buy it yet. Well, friend, let me tell you, today's the day. <laughs> buy it now, because none of us knows what's gonna happen tomorrow. None of us knows what's gonna happen in the next minute. The book of Hebrews says, today. <laughs> Choose today. And if you haven't made that choice, come talk to me, come talk to anybody, <laughs> you know? Like, talk to somebody and say, what is this gospel, you know? What does it mean to believe? What do I need to believe? What does it mean to repent? Because that is the basic need that we all have. And it's taken care of at the cross through Jesus. Praise God. Well, you're gonna have to wait for more, Esther. Um, but... In the meantime, just, you know, be thinking about it. Be thinking about the salvation <laughs> that God offers us and, and go back to Esther and read through that book thinking about, you know, this God that likes to save people. How do I see him in this? I, I listened to Mark Dever had a, a sermon on uh, the book of Esther, and I really appreciate it. He said, we don't have to read the book of Esther and condone everything that's in there because the story isn't necessarily about Esther or Mordecai. It's about God. You know, and isn't it true that in our own lives, we've messed up and we've sinned and maybe we've even been in some situations that are comparable to this. And are we hopeless? Absolutely not. Can God even take bad situations like this and turn them around for good? Absolutely. The point isn't that Esther and Mordecai were sinless in everything that they did. The point is that God is at work. And the point for our lives is to realize God is at work in our lives too. So hopefully you've been encouraged going through this chapter and like I said, we'll, we'll come back to more uh, in the future, but uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for uh, this opportunity to, to look at your word, to um, hopefully understand it and really to see how it points to you. And Lord, I pray that uh, 
that you would be at work in our lives, that you would help us to appreciate you and all that you have done for us, and that you would um, help us to see that you are a God who delivers and saves and uses bad, horrible situations to make good come from them. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you do for us and have done for us through Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.